XR Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the XR Podcast, where we explore reality, the creation of reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, and the XR. X meaning uh, the algebraic X, meaning that we don't uh, have all of the answers to reality just yet. And this episode is very special because we dive into artificial reality uh, with a talk from Jaron Lanier. Uh, literally the pioneer in virtual reality. His company, VPL, in the 1980s was the first to sell virtual reality um, goggles with Fresno lenses, virtual reality gloves, and bodysuits. Uh, his VR glasses were actually called the iPhone, uh, the EYE phone, far ahead of its time. Uh, literally a, a pioneer and a trailblazer in this in this space and uh, his talk is uh, very profound uh, it's, it's one of uh, a yearly talk that he does at Tribeca Film Festival uh, sold out every year um, very coveted and um, incredibly meaningful uh, in its um, kind of importance to humanity uh, also the incredible intelligence behind it so um, it's my great honor and pleasure to share this with you now to give you some background here John starts this talk by recalling a panel that he gave to some students where uh, the students asked him with the uh, climate change artificial intelligence bound to take a lot of our jobs um, a lot of social economic strife uh, they asked him essentially why bring us into such a world of, of huge um, uh, economic and social disparity, right? And his answer was incredibly profound, incredibly knowledgeable about the state of um, technology and society. Uh, so I'd love to share it here with you. Um, please enjoy. And I've heard many dark, cynical, occasionally cruel, often insecure and inarticulate, sometimes scary things from teenagers over decades, but I've never heard anything quite so bleak as this. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to respond. I was actually, it's one of the few times when I've been kind of stunned by somebody and um, what I tried to do was respond as on the level and factually and neutrally as I could. And so I'll tell you the answer that I cobbled together, although I don't think it's quite adequate. And a better answer to that question is what this talk's going to be all about. So the factual basis for an answer is that there, this thing called artificial intelligence that we read about every day that is the contest between the very richest companies in history right now that is the most lauded, the most exalted and best funded thing going on on the planet 
it's a little bit of a make-believe operation, <laughs> okay? Um, and to understand that, there are many ways to see it. And I presented a couple ways, and I don't know if I penetrated, but let me see if I can get through to you guys. So the usual way of criticizing AI is to treat it as a real thing and then talk about what's wrong with it. So for instance, you might say, one problem with AI is that it absorbs and reflects some of our worst qualities. AIs can be racist, AIs can be stupid, AIs can be destructive, and so on. Another way to criticize it uh, has been uh, gush, gushes out of some of the most revered people of our times. People like Stephen Hawking or Elon Musk will say, oh, these AIs, they're going to eat humanity. They're going to destroy us. They're going to take over. And of course, that particular idea has driven some of our most compelling science fiction for decades. We see that in the Matrix movies and many, many other examples. So there is this other way of criticizing AI, which I think is much more helpful and constructive than either of those. Um, and that is to say, it's not even a thing at all. It's a marketing strategy for software. It's not real. And, and that's a bit of a unfamiliar plan of attack on AI um, because we hear that it's real every single day. The tech companies and the military and the Chinese and just all kinds of huge players in the world are constantly bombarding us with this message. AI is real, it's real, it's real. But it isn't really. Now, let me tell you the first way to express how it might not even be a thing in the first place. And for this, I want to talk about a little bit of politics and economics. Don't fall asleep, don't go away. It's important. it's important to take this approach. So the easiest example I found, and some of you might have heard me give this one before, is to talk about the automatic translation between languages, such as between English and Chinese and Spanish. So in the olden days, there were many, many humans employed as translators. Those people have seen their careers challenged. They've seen their world compress. It's very similar to what happened to recording musicians, investigative journalists, photographers. There's about a tenth the number of careers. It's subtle because there's a small minority of people who take really well to the new situation and do better than they would have otherwise, but most people do worse. And, and uh, I, I wrote a book called Who Owns the Future that describes this economic process. When you have a super big computer that regiments everybody, whether you call that computer Facebook or Google or the NSA or China, or whatever you call that computer, or a hedge fund, or a criminal operation, <laughs> what it does is it takes what used to be a bell curve in a society and makes it into a zip curve. It always has to select a tiny number of super, super winners and then everybody else gets flattened. So that's what's happened to the translators. And if you want to know why that happens, ask me in the question time. So anyway, 
on average, these people have done very badly. And the usual way of talking about that is you say, well, creative destruction. Uh, those people who used to translate all of our memos and our little articles and whatever there might be, they're buggy whips, they're obsolete. There's now this smart AI personage that will do it for free. Not really for free, it's in exchange for confusing people for the purpose of destroying the world. But let's leave that aside. <laughs> They'll do it for free. And there are these other entities. It's like there's this new species called the AI that's doing the work instead of the people. But, but, it's not really true. Um, so here, to explain why it's not true, I want to tell you a bit of my personal story, which happens to coincide to a remarkable degree with the history of the AI idea. Back when I was a cute little bubbly computer science person in the late 70s and early 80s, one of my mentors was an extraordinarily generous and brilliant, absolutely brilliant, uh, founding computer scientist of the whole field, and his name was Marvin Minsky. And he passed away not too long ago, and I miss him terribly. And Marvin was super wonderful. He made every little moment into a joke because he thought that humor was the path to wisdom and, and intelligence. He thought humor was the brain's way of noticing that there was something further to understand. He improvised music wonderfully and in all kinds of crazy styles. He was this incredible spirit. Anyway, he also happens to be the author of most of what I consider to be the false myth of AI. So we disagreed about that. And we used to love arguing. The last time I saw him, I'd gotten a call from a mutual friend who said, look, when you go see Marvin, he's very frail now. Don't argue with him. And I was like, are you kidding? That's his favorite thing. So I showed up at his house and he was very frail. And he said, ah, Jaron. I need a good argument. I'm sick of all these people who agree with me. <laughs> so that was Marvin. So back way back when I was young, I was repulsed by the idea of AI. I always thought it was ridiculous to try to turn computers into creatures. I just felt like it was making a false god and it would ruin our engineering and our science because, I mean, Creatureness is in the eye of the beholder. Consciousness is in a way in the eye of the beholder. We can't, if we apply our faith in each other to computers, won't that just confuse things? Like, we don't judge each other like we're machines, right? But as soon as we start judging machines like we're each other, won't that reflect back on us? And in, so, Marvin would say, this is a great argument, I'm enjoying it. But we're about to go to DARPA for funding, and this is a great story for funding. Shut up. <laughs> and so we would go to DARPA or other places and say, hey, there's this thing that's going to take over the world. It'll be the super intelligence someday. We have to be on top of it or our enemies might. They say, okay, here's the money, here's the money. And they say, okay, great. We're going to do some computer science now. So, uh, so to me, the thing started as a marketing strategy. It started as storytelling 
to, to just make it less work to have to deal with grumpy funders, right? It still is that. <laughs> so getting back to the translators, way back in the late 50s, before I was born, I was born in 1960, Marvin had legendarily assigned a couple of graduate students from MIT a summer project of building a translation engine. You should be able to take a translation dictionary from one language to another, and add in Noam Chomsky's little crystalline core of language that he hypothesized, build a program and just convert between languages. But that didn't work. People kept on trying and went through many generations of different methods over years and years and years. And then it wasn't until the 90s when researchers at IBM's lab had this idea, which we now think of as big data. They got a huge body, well for that time, a huge body of translations, happened to come from the records of the United Nations. And they just did statistics. If a certain phrase showed up in one language, they'd look for if it had been translated, and they'd make a mashup of all these little translations overlay a little bit of grammatical rules and this and that, and out of this mishmash came legible translations. How about that? So that was the dawn of, of effective machine translation. <coughs> so these days, you can get free translations from Google, from Microsoft, from some other places, and they're usable for many purposes. Great. I happen to think it's a fantastic thing. I love being able to get an instant translation of a foreign document. I think it's fantastic. But, 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 there's an economic crime at the core of it. And here's the nature of that crime. It turns out that language is alive, like everything else human. Languages change. Every single day, there are new songs and stories and movies and memes. Every single day there's news. And all of these things enter our lexicon very quickly. So we have to add more and more examples every single day for these so-called automatic systems to work. So where do we get the examples? We steal them. We comb the whole web and we find tens of millions of phrase examples from people who don't even know that they're contributing. Some of them are amateur groups who subtitle foreign movies all over the world. Some of them have other peculiar reasons that they're translating things. But the thing is, we have found these millions and millions of people. We take their data, which they have clicked through to give to us and they're not compensated, they don't even know they're contributing. Many of them, to the best of my ability to analyze this, and it's hard, many of them are people who used to have real careers as translators and now have been told that they're useless. So there's something very underhanded going on here. We're saying, we don't need you because we have this new personage, this super smart machine that has replaced you and can work for free. Oh, but we need you, but we'll steal from you, and we won't admit it. We won't admit it, because if we admitted it, would we owe you money? Would you start to think of yourself as still being a contributor? We mustn't have that. No, 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 you're all becoming useless. And we reinforce that message in so many ways. 
Silicon Valley doesn't like talking about paying people for the data that ultimately is the heart of what we call AI. Instead, we'll talk about a universal basic income. All the people are useless, we'll just put them on the dole. Now, so here there's something really strange going on where, and I used to have to explain this, but now I think everybody knows that there's this kind of weird, tricky, dark thing going on with the supposedly free services. When you use Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter, there are algorithms that are trying to track your attention, very similar to the algorithms that run gambling on a casino. They give you just the right feedback to get you tracked. Um, and then they try to persuade you, they try to get you to do this or that. And it's led to this insanity where the whole world becomes based on trickery and who can pull the wool over whose eyes. It's made politics ridiculous. It's turned us against each other. It's made everything insane. It's made it impossible to have real conversations. But you know all of that. That's all understood now. But the purpose for it, it's not that there's somebody at Google or Microsoft or anywhere saying, oh, we want to make the world horrible. Screw this human world. Screw this biosphere. Nobody's saying that in those companies, to my knowledge, at all. What they're saying is, we need the data. We need the data. And th this whole crazy darkness is a byproduct of this race for AI, this perceived all-or-nothing race for who will own the super being that we create. And the super being runs on data, but we don't want to admit it, so we have to steal the data. And the whole thing has this profoundly pathetic quality to me. And there's this alternate world that one can imagine in the future that's better. But in order to see that world, you have to think of AI as not really being a thing. If you can, if you can go through this figure ground reversal, if you can invert your perception and perceive AI not as some kind of new creature, but rather as a human project, you can start to see this other vision in which we do have a lot of robots and software that's helping to do things. We do have a world where robots have crafted custom seats for each of you, and then we'll recycle the materials after the show, and everybody will have healthier backs. <laughs> I'm just making that up. Um, but so have, working with that, there'll be a collective of chiropractors who are offering data to those robots that custom make the seats, and you'll get a little royalty for your comfort. And that royalty will build up as more and more seats are constructed by the robots over time. And the recycling robots will recycle. Uh, that might be, there might be a little bit of money going to chemists and mechanical engineers, perhaps. But the thing is, lots and lots of people data to these so-called automations of the future, and if we acknowledge them, we can imagine this world where people become creative, take pride, find value, find meaningful careers in providing data to this future world filled with robots and filled with automation that's more comfortable, safer, healthier, uh, in which we don't destroy our climate in this world that makes more sense. We can imagine this world in which people are acknowledged for their actual contributions. And the distance between that world and the world where everybody feels useless, like those teenagers, is this belief that the computers come alive and that whoever owns the computer should own everything.
whoever owns the robot should own everything. That, that is, the myth provides this gigantic winner-take-all benefit to whoever ends up owning this, this uh, whatever it is, the robot or the AI. Now, I realized this a long time ago. <laughs> I've been flapping about this for decades. And it's one of the reasons why I got really involved in artist rights way back. And this was an incredibly painful period for me. And I want to say a little bit about it. Um, in the 80s and 90s, there was this fantastically powerful movement within tech circles, and to, and to a degree everywhere, that information should be free. Everyone should share information. Copyright's terrible. Artists shouldn't expect to be paid directly. They should find some other indirect way to make a living. And this struck me as terrible, because if we believe that about, it was initially musicians, if we believe that musicians shouldn't be paid directly, but through some other, they should go and tour and busk or whatever, but they shouldn't actually get paid for like recorded music. If we believe that their data should be free, eventually everybody's data will be free, and then wealth will concentrate totally around a small number of people who own the biggest computers and the robots and whatnot, and that would be a horrible world. That's the Matrix world or something. It's like an awful destination. So I always felt that this, this movement to make things free was terribly wrong-headed. It was, it was this first step towards the worst sort of dystopia. Um, now, some of you might be too young to remember this, but to criticize the notion that everything should be free in those years, in the 80s and 90s, was to be a despised heretic. And there's still people who won't talk to me over this, even all these years later. It was really, really hard. I think it's, it's not such a weird thing to say anymore. And in fact, one of the interesting things <clears throat> is that we've had some experiments lately that this world where we acknowledge that each other's information is worth something and that we could have a sort of a, a new take on a market that could actually give us a better future. That, that idea has been validated in, in many cases. One of the ones I'd like to bring up is uh, Netflix, HBO, and so on. I'm not saying they're perfect, and I imagine there's some people involved in the festival who have one beef or another with those companies. Fine, do it. Give them pressure to be better. But here's the thing I want to say. Back around the turn of the century, it was this absolutist dogma that pirated video was the future, that no one would ever pay for anything in the future. And indeed, when everything was volunteerism, like the Wikipedia, everything would get better. Movies and TV would get better. Everything would be fantastic. We had a fair fight between that model and the paid model. And what happened is enough people have decided it's fine to pay your Netflix monthly bill or whatever, that we got this thing called peak TV. And you know, it's a funny thing. I, I, I'm not saying that I necessarily think that what's on streaming services is the best possible thing there could be. I'm personally not that into dragons and bodices and all that stuff. Um, and apparently everyone else is. But uh, the, the point is, though, that it's not a bunch of people pulling cruel pranks, which is what free YouTube looks like, or cranky people, or racist people, or whatever. It's better. PTV is actually better. So there's this thing that happened where when you pay artists, everybody got happier. It made sense. And what I'm hoping is that that 
precedent uh, that comes out of the moving image world will spread and will eventually cover the translators, will cover all the people providing data, my hypothetical chiropractors who are providing data to robots to make your custom seats. That, I think, is the humanistic path to the future. Uh, you might think, wow, that's a lot of capitalism, isn't it? But the thing is, if you push capitalism far enough, I think it'll take on a different character. I don't think it'll be like traditional capitalism. I think it'll become this kind of ambient share economy thing that you actually don't have to worry about as much because you'll start to find that your data is being used by other people in a thousand different ways if you allow it. And you'll start getting little royalties here and there. And as long as you're getting, as long as you're doing okay, I don't even think you'll have to think about it that much. I think, I think in this world, capitalism might be less annoying than our current version. Although, of course, we don't know. Sometimes one's best hopes turn out to not be justified, but it's at least worth trying. So, I thought about what these teenagers asked me in Connecticut. Why are we here? And one of the things that flooded through my mind is that we've been hearing a lot of people expressing anxiety that they're becoming obsolete, that they'll be replaced. Now, I can't help but notice that the rhetoric from some of the most horrible, racist, xenophobic people in the world tends to center on this idea that somehow they're going to be replaced, that they're being removed. This um, horrible, horrible individual who attacked mosques in New Zealand recently began his manifesto with, it's all about replacement, replacement, replacement. Um, the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville chanted, the Jews will not replace us. The, the whole uh, white supremacist movement has this fantasy that they're being made obsolete, which is, I mean, the most cursory examination shows that it's not rational. There's a ton of white people in the world. I mean, it's from some sort of deep anxiety. Is there a connection? I don't want to say that it's a total explanation. I'm certain it isn't. Is it a partial explanation? Yeah, I kind of think it is. I kind of think it is. I kind of think um, if you, I kind of think we're, we send out a ton of messages that a ton of people aren't really going to be needed. And I think we should expect those people to be angry. And if the channel available to them is to be angry about some fantasy of white replacement or whatever nonsense it is, we shouldn't be surprised. So I, I think, you know, if you look at the world today, there's a number of apparent core challenges. One of them is staying attached to reality so we don't extinguish ourselves by ruining our climate. And another, is staying attached to reality so we don't ruin ourselves through bizarre mutual hate. It's actually not mutual, it's usually a minority that is broadcasting hate. Um, how do you how do you address this hate? I don't know the full answer. 
The history of humankind is filled with hate. It's been with us, it's been our constant companion, but, but surely fueling it can't be the right idea. And so I, I feel I must <laughs> cajole, beg, challenge, scream at my fellow people in science and technology to at least try to be able to see this inversion, to see this other way of interpreting our situation in which AI is not even a thing. As soon as you can see that, you start to ask interesting questions, like of the people in the world who we consider to not be as valuable, apparently, because they're poor, might some of them be offering valuable data in the future? And one thing I note is that when cool hunters go, go, go out looking for new fashion trends to get a jump, where do they go? They go to the poorest places. That's where fashion tends to come from, whether it's in the US or elsewhere. When musicians go out looking for new beats, where do they go? It's not Beverly Hills. The beats come out of places that are poor often. Often, often. Um, I have a feeling and I don't, I don't know for certain that this is true, but I think a future in which people are valued and can take pride in and can build careers out of the data they contribute, I think that future is one that also actually will turn out to be compatible with social justice. I might be wrong. There's only one way to find out, and it's so worth checking out if this is true. I, one of the questions that annoys me more than almost any other question I get when I'm challenged about my worldview is somebody will say, well, you think all these people are valuable, but actually it's only a few elite people who are valuable and everybody else is just here for a free ride. I hear that so much from the billionaire technocrats in my world, many of whom are, are sweet people, but they're just kind of trapped in this worldview. And I don't think it's true. I think if we open ourselves up, I think we just discover that our world is built by a massive collective brilliance. The fact that this world is here is a miracle and many, many more people have contributed to it than we typically acknowledge. And why not formalize that a bit? Why not actually admit it? Why not see if we can stretch capitalism into something that's more inclusive and honest in order to protect us from a monopoly run by fake robots, you know? Why not? And, and I say this not as an anti-tech person. Um, one of the creepier things called AI these days is facial recognition. My buddies and I sold Google its first facial recognition. I, I sold them this company, it was called Imatic, and we used to, well, I won't go into it, but uh, I actually did, my, my part in developing it was back in the 90s, and the original idea was to track facial features to sort of dress up people's faces and transform them into creatures, and I used to do it in uh, projections with my weird jazz club, and we would do it at the knitting factory in the kitchen, I don't even know if these venues still exist here, but it was, I lived in Tribeca, and I had these big Silicon Valley 
So no, they're called silicon graphics computers. They were like refrigerators, and we have to wheel them in, uh, it must be admitted, stolen mail carts from my loft to the venues <laughs> and try to get them working. And I would show these crazy, like, um, like uh, the saxophonist's face would become like one of the corrupt politicians of the day. I think Sununu was a big one for us. And, and you'd see, like, and the music would drive crazy expressions. It was, it was funny. It was really good. But that, that thing was bought by Google and has uh, morphed into this scary surveillance technology. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. If everybody owns the robot, everybody has a voice in the control of the robot, it doesn't have to become this monolithically owned surveillance technology. Um, so, you'll probably, at this festival in the coming years, see many a science fiction film in which the AI is treated as a real thing. There'll be some AI that battles astronauts or whatever. While you're watching that, try to remember it's all put up. It's a fake. It's not real. Now, there is a philosophical quandary at the core of this, which is somebody will say, but, but, but how can you say it's not real? I mean, isn't that just human chauvinism or something? And what I want to say is, it is human chauvinism and great. Great. We show faith in each other every single minute if we can connect as humans at all. We show faith that the other person is really there, that there's a consciousness inside, but you can't prove that. That's not science, that's faith. A lot of what faith meant over the centuries and millennia was faith in a god or gods or something. And we didn't have to think about whether we believed in other people so much, but now we do. The new faith is just that the other person is really there. And that faith is precious, and you shouldn't squander it. I should note that it's often the case that when somebody wants to manipulate somebody else, they'll purport a faith in some um, humanity somewhere in order to make their case morally. In the US that often happens, for instance, in attacks on um, female choice. Women are told, you can't have choice because I'm speaking for the fetus. I have faith in that fetus. That's a manipulative faith. It might be sincerely believed by people, I'm sure it is in some cases, but The, the key to this faith is to not overextend it. I used to have a um, metaphor for this, which is called the circle of empathy, which coincidentally was also appeared simultaneously from uh, a philosopher named uh, Singer, who's interested in animal rights. And here's how the circle of empathy works. Um, the idea is that there's this circle around each person, which is, you can also call it your circle of faith. It's those things in the world that you respect enough, that you give them space, you let them be what they are, you don't impose upon them, other humans. And then there are these borderline things. Um, for many of us, we don't accept all humans in our circle. That's racism, that's xenophobia, that's homophobia. There are people who try to extend the circle way beyond humans, um, who worry about the 
bacteria kill the maize mosquitoes or something like that. I know I have friends like that in California. And there's a point where if you stay too far, you lose competence. If you pull it in too far, you become cruel and evil. If you go too far out, you become a little ridiculous. And there's no way to know exactly where that circle should be. Don't put computers inside your circle. Don't do it. Don't do it. It ruins the economy. It ruins the world. It thrusts us all into a world of make-believe because the people who are trying to steal the data have to steal it in tricky ways so it all becomes about the trickery and that's the world we're living in now. Uh, I'll close with one thought about virtual reality, which I might have said last year at my talk at this festival, I don't remember, but it's also about this question of faith. Um, my very favorite thing about virtual reality is that when you are in a cannily designed virtual world, things, as you know, can change quite radically. You can experience everything morphing about in every way. You can experience yourself as giant or tiny. You can experience yourself on Earth or imaginary worlds. You can experience your body transformed. You can become a centipede or a lobster or a monster or a spider or an octopus. And you can, your, your brain is evolved through all kinds of creatures on its way to humanity. So the brain really does accept this change in body status. So you can change your body, you can change your world. And yet through all of that, what is this thing experiencing all that? That's consciousness, that's your consciousness floating there. The best thing about virtual reality is that it's a consciousness noticing device. When you watch things on a film, on a film screen, when you watch the silver screen, you are an observer. You are an observer, but you don't have to notice yourself, you just see this. When you go through the world, you just notice the world. When you just notice the world, you don't notice that there's something in you, something extraordinarily exceptional, magical, this mystical, this, this center of experience. It's easy to ignore it. It's easy to pretend it isn't there. I call that performing anti-magic, to just pretend you're a robot. But in modernity, it's so, so easy to think of yourself as just data. You see the world through your phone. You see, your, you see yourself turned into data all the time in every decision and everything that happens to you. And yet there's this thing beyond data, there's this mystical center that you can feel in many ways, but VR is one of those ways. And uh, I encourage you to consider that next time you try a VR thing. Notice yourself, notice this thing floating in it that makes it all happen, that receives it. It's so extraordinary. Okay, so here's what will happen with our remaining time. I usually play some unusual instrument when I give a talk. I will do that. And then after that, I will take your questions. Reasonable? <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that may be one of the finest lecturers on uh, virtual reality 
especially in, in terms of um, incredible social relevance. Um, I love how he really brings it back to uh, agency, right? Is to uh, you, it is you uh, that is experiencing reality. It is you that is experiencing uh, virtual reality. And above all, it's very interesting how he expresses uh, his view of AI as a marketing term to essentially cheapen the human experience to uh, data uh, that can uh, then be used and resold. And it sounds like such science fiction until you see uh, current news, current uh, zeitgeist uh, research uh, being kind of uh, validating these these concerns. So, for example, this week on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, uh, one of the guests was Lex Friedman, an MIT researcher in artificial intelligence. Uh, they talked briefly about uh, autonomous vehicles, right, self-driving cars. Uh, the summary there was that um, driving is incredibly complex and uh, cars are very far from uh, being as good uh, in terms of understanding uh, the actual complexities of, of context of what's going on on a road. Uh, but then they got into a little bit of uh, the social issues of owning a robot, right? Of uh, essentially uh, when you start uh, talking about robots as companions, uh, as friends, uh, even lovers, what are the implications of, of owning uh, uh, such a uh, like companion, right? So, uh, really interesting. And Lex Friedman actually has his own podcast uh, where he's interviewed Elon Musk. Uh, recently, he's had a guest uh, really getting into the uh, uh, assembler, right? Uh, compiler languages, right? And understanding uh, how it is that... Uh, computers create relationships between data, how we take our natural language of ifs and thens, um, and, and uh, how that turns into electrons moving quickly in a circuit board. So really interesting how that, uh, uh, that kind of rabbit hole there. Uh, the other guest he had this week was Jamie Metzl, and he wrote a book called Hacking Darwin. Uh, they go very much into uh, the data, the big data behind the genetic code uh, and how countries are uh, using these kind of emerging technologies of uh, gene therapy, um, essentially uh, gene sequencing, which is one of the greatest uh, human mysteries and it's literally on the verge of uh, being cracked of being uh, um, put into our control, right? So uh, life as we know it for billions of years was a natural evolutionary process. And now in this decade, uh, in this time in history, for the first time ever, we have the ability to uh, put this into our own hands and we get to decide uh, how, um, how it gets to be used, right? And one of the 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 most uh, interesting questions, right, that Joe Rogan brings up is, uh, will this uh, go to the incredibly wealthy, right? Will this power of gene editing, of uh, life extension, human modification, uh, essentially the evolutionary path, uh, 
uh, will it fork and there will be a uh, a rich uh, a wealthy kind of um, subspecies of humans and uh, will there be the rest right will there be those that cannot afford the gene um, uh, even genetic screening right? uh, and the other side of it is uh, the social uh, kind of stigma of, of uh, not using this gene technology right the social stigma of natural reproduction in the future sort of uh, comparing it to the um, the debate of, uh, of vaccines going on now it's it's hardly even a debate right the vaccinations have become quite a uh, uh, a social um, a socially enforced norm and uh, another thing that that Jamie Metzl the uh, this author of hacking Darwin uh, proposed right was that uh, governments don't even have to really enforce uh, this kind of genetic screening, right? They can, they can literally just opt out of uh, uh, the kind of the medical support, right, for preventable conditions, and uh, essentially create uh, um, behavioral patterns based on uh, um, kind of the needs of government, right? We, and they got it uh, pretty deep into. Uh, North Korea, the uh, what the, the the dictatorship and the the future of that in terms of uh, Chinese involvement, uh, Chinese uh, Chinese uh, what industry and uh, objectives in general. Uh, they went very deep into kind of the um, the the process of uh, privacy and how there's a, a wide spectrum going from Europe, which has. Uh, the most kind of uh, human privacy uh, to America, which is, you know, somewhere in between, and China, which is uh, literally allowing all of their human data to be uh, crunched by these machines, right? So very much uh, um, full circle to what Jaron Lanier is talking about, about taking um, this this data of people and and the AI is really just that it is the crunching of this um, human data set uh, and for for what end right that it becomes kind of the big question uh, and one of the things that, that Jamie Metzl was talking about on this Joe Rogan podcast was the uh, um, kind of the next decade the next uh, generation is going to be uh, the generation of Chinese-American relations and how that plays out uh, in terms of new technologies, in terms of genetics and AI. And and the way these technologies affect our lives is uh, going to be much uh, on a much larger scale than I think we've ever imagined. And uh, on that note, the most important thing I think that is stressed uh, across the board here, right, is uh, connection with each other, right, is that we are humans uh, on this planet sharing a similar human experience. Uh, we have great um, value and interest uh, and enjoyment in the human experience, right? And the experience of each other, right? And the experience of conversations, uh, um, 
literature, uh, knowledge, right? Uh, the, the, the human um, communication mechanism is, is beautiful. And I think that is the basis of what a lot of uh, this technology um, allows us uh, to to really enhance um, and uh, really getting together is is what this is all about. Uh, uh, on that note, we have a great event coming up, uh, the Digital Hollywood Experience. It's digitalhollywood.com. We actually have free passes. If uh, the first 10 listeners to go to digitalhollywood.com, uh, go look for the form uh, for discounted passes. Go ahead and enter zero as the uh, the payment, and uh, uh, in the uh, comments box, put friends of Lex Dreitzer. That's uh, L E X D R E I T S E R, and you will be comped a full access pass to Digital Hollywood, May twenty first to the twenty third, uh, in the Scareball Center in Los Angeles. Uh, definitely not to be missed. There is a three or what is it um seven amazing tracks uh from the uh, wellness experience influencer summit uh immersion ar vr and xr uh do not miss this and go ahead and go to digitalhollywood.com and uh look for the discounted registration page and serve friends of Lex Dreiser and get your free passes to Digital Hollywood Summit. XR Podcast is brought to you by VRTO, the Virtual and Augmented World Conference and Expo, returns for its fourth year, June 1st to 3rd in Toronto, Canada. Known for its thematic flow and unusual subject matter, this intimate symposium welcomes speakers from Intel Studios and Ubisoft to best-selling authors and the indie VR game developers. The stage will be set with change agents, mavericks, and thought leaders. VRTO explores everything from volumetric capture to esports, surgery, to interactive storytelling. And if you're interested in new technology, culture, industry, and arts are coalescing and advancing. VRTO is a conference not to be missed. Find tickets at conference.virtualreality.to. That's conference.virtualreality.to. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the XR Podcast. I am Lex Dreitzer, the VR generalist, and it was my honor and pleasure to be your host today. Thank you.